Good morning, family. Morning. Morning, family. It's good to be with you today. My name is Corey. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I preach for a long time, so we got to just get going. Get your Bible out. Get into Philippians chapter 2. Uh, we're in this fantastic study on the book of Philippians where Paul lays out for us what it looks like to live with joy in all circumstances, what it means to be faithful to Jesus, what it is to be a kingdom citizen. And then he breaks into this passage, which is a very, very famous passage, uh, Philippians chapter 2. And, uh, and so as we dive into it today, you're going you're gonna to hear some things you probably heard before, but my hope is that we can dig a little deeper and get to some underlying issues of our own human hearts. As I was preparing for the message this week, I got this thought in my head as it relates to Philippians 2. Have you ever seen somebody who's doing something that you just kind of think is, and this is going to sound weird, but it's below them. Like it's, it's below their stations. It's not actually what they should be doing. They, they deserve a little bit more. And I kind of started to think about this. Like it'd be really weird for us, and we're Canadians, if the queen, head of state, was like, if we went to Buckingham Palace and she was there cleaning the floors. Like she's almost 100, so that's problematic. But also we would feel like it's, it's not quite right that the queen is, is, is looking after the floor and stuff, right? When I was in a South American country on a mission trip as a teenager, I remember seeing this event happen and kind of unfold before my eyes. And you have to understand, in this culture, the station of pastor is very, very important. It's like, it's, it's like the pinnacle position in the community. And so we, we got there and we were going to a, a prayer meeting, and those people know how to pray. And when we got there, we're, we're watching these people setting up chairs, and we realized that this was the pastor who was setting up chairs in kind of a semicircle so he could, he could lead through this prayer moment. And the ladies came in that were, they were coming in to kind of help set up, but the pastor was there before them, and they were so upset. They were so frustrated, so hurt that the pastor was doing something that was below his dignity. It's kind of the way that they talked about it, right? The pastor is, is of such high importance that he shouldn't be the one having to lay out chairs and make sure that the, the room is ready for the prayer. We have, we have people that can serve in that capacity. And I thought to myself, it was very, very strange because in our Western world, we, we kind of have two sets of leadership. We have servant leaders that follow the model of Jesus and looking to serve the people that they are leading. Or we have the domineering leader. In the West, we kind of default to the domineering leader, the person who's in charge, who makes all the calls, who says things as they are. And it's, it's actually quite different than that when we look at the Bible. And so as we get into the message today, keep that in your mind of, of seeing somebody of, of such great worth, of such great importance doing something that is below their station. And so the title of the message today is The Mind of Christ in Humility, because that's what we're going to be looking at. We're going to be looking at this issue of humility. So if you would, please stand as we honor God by standing as we read his word. This is Philippians chapter 2. I'll read from verses 1 to 11. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along. Uh, and if not, uh, you, can, you can listen to this as I read. Uh, this is Philippians chapter 2, 1 to 11. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather... In humility, value others as above yourselves, not looking to your own interests only, but each of you looking to the interests of others. In your relationships among one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing 
by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even to death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, and he gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You go ahead and you can take a seat. So I think you can kind of see some of those things that are packaged in that that set of verses that I'm kind of talking about of, of this person of significant importance having this lowly station and taking on this lowly station. So the big idea today is this, that the Christian life should exude Jesus-centered humility. This is, this is the position. This is the posture that we ought to take. And so we're going to see that as we dive into the passage. So here's the first thing, and, and I, I wrote, I got your notes there, just say the, the ideas. I didn't want you to have to sit there and write all of these things down, because I want you to pay attention and look for how this actually translates from the passages that are here. So share the mind of Christ in you. That's the first point, and look where Paul lays this out for us. He says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, really significant word, having the same love, being one in spirit and in purpose. So Paul says, he uses this if language, but it's a bad translation in our English, in our English Bibles. It should be the word because. It's not a question of, is this a possibility? Is this right? It's because this is true, because you have these five different things, encouragement and comfort and fellowship with God's spirit and the tenderness of the gospel and the compassion that God offers you, because you have those things, Paul says, now make my joy complete. So because you've received these five really significant gifts, go and do for one another in this making my joy complete. This phrase, making my joy complete, is an overflow. Make Paul's joy overflow by being, and then he uses the word like-minded. This is also a very bad translation. Sometimes we can get some really great translations in our English language that helps us to really navigate the passage well, and it, it gets us the, the main idea because we wouldn't actually use this phrase. The phrase and the issue that Paul is raising here of like-minded or of being of the same love, being one in spirit, is being one-souled. The only time that we would ever talk about that is when a couple gets married, right? Like the two become one. They, they share this entity of this uniquely new relationship that Jesus is blessing. This one-souled thing. What Paul is saying is because you have these five gifts of encouragement and comfort and fellowship and tenderness and compassion, the responsibility for the believer is then to let the joy of God overflow in Paul as we together are one-souled. As we live as if we are one soul sharing the same mind, sharing the same love, being one in spirit, being one in purpose. So really what verses one and two could read is because you participate in the Holy Spirit, because you are comforted by the love of Christ that saves you, because you are in Jesus and part of his church, because you have tenderness, because you experience the compassion and grace of God, make my joy complete Make my joy overflow as you are in one soul out of love for one another. As you pursue holiness, 
as you live the way of the gospel in your purpose. So that's how Paul kind of lays this out. Do you see how this is particularly about unity? It's important that we are on this journey of faith together, being kingdom people together. And that's what we talked about last week. And then Paul continues, he says, do nothing, so out of reference to the last things, but don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Now, this selfish ambition thing is, an, is the issue of self-adulation. I can't spell today, but Nadine's over there. She's watching me to make sure I spell right. Uh, self-adulation, making too much of yourself, puffing yourself up, being filled with pride, or vain conceit, which a really good translation for this is glory-seeking. Don't be about building yourself up or seeking out glory for yourselves, but instead, in humility, consider others better than you. Each of you. So he's not saying one person do this. He's saying everybody do this in the church. You should look not to your own interests, but to also to the interests of others. Now, what's really interesting about this word humility is that the word doesn't exist. When you read through the Greek New Testament, you get to Philippians chapter 2, you start reading, it actually reads like this. Do nothing out of self-adulation. Don't be glory-seeking. Instead, consider others as more important than you. Here's the reason why. The word didn't exist in Greek. Many scholars actually think that Paul made up this word because there was such a, such a confusing idea to the people in the first century. To be somebody who took on humiliation was ridiculous. A Roman person, the pinnacle of society, the, the greatest human uh, population that had ever existed to that point, the most powerful people in the world, why would they ever want to consider being humbled? Because humili humility didn't exist. It was humiliation. It was something done to you. And the Romans loved to do that. They loved to flaunt their power. They liked to, they liked to show their distinctive advantage. So this word doesn't exist. It's, and, but what Paul does here is he, he tries to use this word to move us in a direction. He uses this phraseology, and we insert humility because humility is the idea of self-determined lowliness. It's an action of positioning yourself underneath another. It's not thinking of yourself as lower in value and worth than you are, or being self-demeaning or self-deprecating to the point of abuse, but to think of others with the opportunity of how you can then bless them. Steve Lawson, the great commentator, says this about this word humility. The Philippians, however, did not even have a word for humility because it was considered of such low value. The concept was entirely foreign to the Greeks who were all about their thinking and utterly abhorrent to the Romans because of their power. The word hum humility was coined when the church was birthed. Some speculate that the word was even invented by Paul while he was writing these verses. That's pretty significant, right? Like the word doesn't exist. So Paul invents this new concept of what it means to be a Christian is to allow for yourself to be positioned as underneath others for the benefit of them and not of yourself. What would our Western world like if we, look like if we did that? Upside down, right? You'd turn those pyramids upside down, it'd be pretty different. And so what Paul says is that we are to share the mind of Christ in unity this issue of humility. Look to outserve one another. Look to bless one another. Look to put others first. Look to serve your family. Look to outserve your wife or your husband. Look to outserve your children. Take on the position of servant and slave, thinking of others as what the word in Greek is as superior to yourself. And here's the reason why. 
Because in the next breakdown of the verses, what Paul says, because he who is superior to us in every way came to serve us. Here's a second idea that we are to model the humility of Christ in his incarnation. It's not just some idea. Jesus does it and he shows us what it looks like. Now this passage that we're getting into uh, between verses 6 through 11 is called the kenosis passage. Kenosis is a Greek word that means emptying or to, uh, or to dissolve of prestige and power. And so Paul lays this out. And this, actually, this passage is, if you've got, uh, depending on what kind of Bible you're holding, uh, it might be like indented and kind of shifted over to a side. And if it is, it's because this was recognized as an early Christian hymn, very similar to the Psalms. If you go to the Psalms in your Bible, it'd kind of be indented and look like it's poetic in nature. It's very similar. The church would have sung this in the, in the early years of its existence. So Paul continues and he says, your attitude, it's inclusive, everybody's, should be the same as that of Jesus. Okay, so here's the model. You're not sure what to do as a Christian? You follow the example of Jesus, you're going to do okay. He begins with this statement to help us understand that what Jesus has done for us is so much greater than we can ever possibly understand. Jesus' attitude towards humanity was humility. The most, and even to the most significant degree possible. Because it says this, Jesus who, being in very nature God, we're going to talk about that because it's super significant, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped. But Jesus made himself, on purpose, nothing. And this is that word kenosis. He emptied himself. Taking the very nature of a servant, well, that should have been read, apologies, that's linked, of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even to death on a cross. So now there's a million theological implications of that. So we're going to take this really, really slow. First, Paul begins with the negative, which is very interesting. It doesn't usually go this way in the New Testament. He says, Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not. He only didn't do one thing. And what it is, is he didn't look for the equality that he has as God as something that he should own on earth. So this word equality is, the, is, is not just the issue of sameness, but it's the issue of right. So Jesus has the rights as God because he is God, the second person of the Trinity. But when he came to earth, he didn't look for that to be used for his own advantage. This word grasp actually means a spoil of war. So Jesus has earned this. He has the right to it, but he has allowed it to not be to his advantage. Then it says, back up just a little bit, Jesus who being in the very nature God. Now this word nature is the word morphe. And it means the form. So Jesus being in the very form of God did not consider his rights as God as something to be used as his spoil for more, but instead he does this for himself. He does this on our benefit to himself, empties himself of his rights and privileges as God. He takes on this morphe of a servant. The word servant here should actually be the word slave being made in human likeness, and so on. So it got me thinking. We got 
that word form seems like it's significant. Well, uh, one commentator says it this way. This word form or morphe is only used twice in the New Testament, both right here. So Paul is using something of such significance. It's the idea that the entire form is the visible expression or the essential nature of something. Okay, so, so think about it this way. Um, your kids, when you have children, they are, they are a part of you. They come from you. Essentially, they are the next iteration of you. But they're not you. They're distinct. They're unique. So we get this confused in our minds thinking that, okay, so Jesus takes on this humanity. That means he's a new, completely different entity. No, 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 no. Jesus, the son of God, was always Jesus, the son of God, even before he came to earth in human flesh. He takes on this morphe. He's the essential nature or the visible expression of God himself. So Paul says Christ is the visible expression, the morphe of God's very essence. And the New Testament actually speaks about this on significant occasions. Here's my very favorite passage in the whole Bible. It's all about the glory of Jesus. Colossians 1, 15 and 16. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He is the very essence, the essential nature of God, the firstborn over all creation. Not meaning that Jesus was born, for, born first, but that he's the most, most important. He's the superior one. He's the most preeminent. For by Jesus, all things were created, meaning that he's pre-eternal. He didn't start existing when he came to earth. He was there beforehand. He's the logos, the very word of God, John 1 says. He was the voice piece that breathed creation into existence in Genesis 1. And he is above all these things in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. All things were created through him, pre-incarnate nature, and for him, for his very glory and purpose. See, when we look at this passage, it's, it's easy to kind of get sidetracked. Well, Jesus, he, he's kind of like God. No, he is God. Well, Jesus, when he became man, he, he had to lay aside some of his... No, 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 no. He was fully God, present in himself all the time, without question. And that was a major heresy of the early church. That Jesus couldn't be both of these things. But I want to really major on this idea here. That Jesus empties himself. Kino or kenosis means it's a verb. It's not, just a, it's not just an idea. It's a verb word. So it's an action. Jesus takes on emptying himself. And so Jesus doesn't become less God while he's here on earth. Instead, Jesus subtracts his rights as God in order to take on humanity, confining the infinite creator into created matter. Now, this issue doesn't make sense to our, our Western mindset because we're very, uh, we're very linear thinkers and we like math, right? Well, we might not like math, but we do everything based on math. Like one plus one equals, in this situation, one God plus taking on humanity equals zero. How does that make sense? It doesn't become something uniquely different Jesus is God. He subtracts his rights as God from himself and becomes himself. It doesn't seem like it makes very much sense. Because the word kenosis, the word of emptying, doesn't mean that Jesus empties himself of any of his divine glory and his right to do what he wants as God. It doesn't mean that at all. It means that he's, he's emptied himself, choosing to lose the, the, or to divestage his position and his prestige. He's allowing for the thing that makes him God to go, I'm not going to use that as my right while I'm here on earth. It belongs to me. I own it. 
I'm not going to flaunt it. Instead, I'm going to be confined into this thing. And here's the reason why. Jesus regularly in the Gospels, particularly in the Gospel of John, expresses to the people around him as they come to him, as they start to figure out that this guy must have come from God, he points the direction away from him and to the Father. He says stuff like, oh, no, I'm here to do my Father's work. I'm here to preach the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of myself. I'm here to do the things that God has asked me to do. Now, they're, of course, the same work because they're the same God. But Jesus doesn't put himself at the pinnacle. He humbles himself, coming underneath the authority of the Father, even though he owns the same authority. And then empties himself of that right to take on humanity. See, sometimes people say it like this. Well, Jesus just, he was God cloaked in flesh. That's, that's not a great way to look at it. If Jesus just put on a, a, a human shirt or a human coat, then he's not actually fully human. It's like he's trying to hide something. That's problematic, and I'm, I'm going to explain why. Let's, me, let, let's, let's pretend that you made something. You're an inventor, and you, you came up with the world's first robot. Now, this, and by the way, this is a terrible example, but follow me. When you make the robot, you don't become the robot, right? You are the owner, the designer, its maker. You've determined the boundaries to which the, the robot must exist inside of. You've, you've kind of set the manual of operation, as it were, right? So the robot can't do anything that you've not designed for it to do. So follow me with this, because it doesn't really work, but follow. God makes man... God breathed life into man because there was nothing in us that would cause us to live independent from God. It doesn't exist. We, can't, we, can't, we don't exist without God's intervention and God's creation. Jesus is God, and Jesus comes to earth as creator and confines himself to the boundaries of the very thing he created. Does that make sense? I'm getting like a, hold on, what are you talking about? Jesus, who created everything, goes, hey, do you know what would be a really good idea? I'm going to save everybody by coming and being them. Because that's the only way that it could happen. Jesus takes on humanity, fitting his divinity inside of the boundaries of what it meant to be his creation. So I started thinking about this more because I was like, there's got to be some sort of image that I can play off of to help people get it. Have you ever seen the movie Aladdin? Hands up, you've seen the movie Aladdin. Too many of you are not 90s kids. You got to go back and watch all those movies from the 90s. That's when Disney was at its peak, man. Um, I started thinking about this. The, the story of Aladdin, there's this, this, uh, this young guy who's, who's homeless. He's trying to make a name for himself. He wants to have all the power and the prestige and whatever else. And uh, he gets tricked by this really terrible wizard dude who's like, hey, spoiler alert, um, you're going to send you into this cave and you're gonna, you, I want you to get this lamp. And he finds the lamp anyways. He ends up having this lamp that has a genie inside and he rubs the lamp, and the genie comes out. He's like, what's it like to be a genie? What, like, you're, you're all powerful. You can, you can do anything. And the genie makes an incredible statement. It kind of relates to this whole idea. Here's a statement that he makes. As a genie, I have the ability to do anything, barring like a couple little things. He said, I can't bring anybody back from the dead, or I can't make, blah, blah, blah. It's, it's important for the story. It's not important for right now. But he says, I have the power to do absolutely anything. I'm outside of your, your natural understanding of how things should work here on earth. He sa- and he says this, I have phenomenal cosmic powers. Phenomenal, co- I can do whatever I want. You wish it, I can do it. Want a Ferrari? I want it. Whoever's driving the Corvetto side, I want to go for a ride later also. Uh, phenomenal cosmic powers. I've got all this kind of power, but I'm confined to this itty bitty living space. 
See how that works? Jesus, phenomenal cosmic powers, confines himself in this tiny little living space. Still has all the rights, but he's kind of not trapped, but he chooses to take on this thing. It's weird. It doesn't make sense. Why would God do this? Therefore, the pre-incarnate Son of God divested himself of position and prestige, not by subtracting deity, but adding humanity, becoming the God-man, being fully God and fully man. Now, there are actually several significant histories throughout the course of the Christian church that try to suggest that Jesus couldn't be both fully God and fully man at the same time. So you're not going to remember all these. I'm not trying to help you remember all these. I just want you to hear them because you're like, oh, that doesn't sound right. But this was something that was believed by people prominent in the church. The first one is called adoptionism. That Jesus actually wasn't God. He was just a human that was born from Mary and probably Joseph. That he wasn't pre-existent. That he wasn't pre-eternal, meaning that he's not God. He's just a human. But because he was a man who pleased God so much that God gave him all the rights as God, problematic, right? We can all agree that that's problematic, right? Here's the second one, docetism. That Jesus only seemed to have been in a physical body. That he only appeared like a man. That he wasn't actually human. That he was God, kind of this idea of the taking on the human shirt. But he wasn't actually fleshly. He wasn't actually human, that's, that's another problem. I'm going to explain why. Arianism, it's, it's similar to adoptionism, but instead of being a, a human that God blessed, it was, that, it was the fact that God actually made Jesus in the incarnation, that he wasn't pre-existent, but God made him at the moment of his conception. Now God becomes human on the earth. He didn't exist beforehand because in this view, it's that God cannot become flesh because he's only spirit. Well, they have a pretty low view of what God can do. Here's another one. This one does, this word is very difficult to understand, but monophysites. It's that, it's the idea that Jesus didn't have two natures, but only one nature in flux. So kind of think about it this way. You're a glass half empty or half full person. Based on perception, right? So kind of think about it this way. As Jesus needs to use his divinity, his humanity drops. And as he needs to use his humanity, his divinity drops. So these things are always in flux, but not two separate natures, not two separate essential parts of who he is. And there's a current heresy going around in the Western world these days that, that Jesus was, was a man who lived in right relationship to God. It's very similar to the first one of adoptionism. That Jesus was, he was not actually God. He was just a man who lived in such close relationship with God that God used his life as the example and as the trajectory of how to fix, God, uh, the, fix the problem of sin in the world. Showing, that, showing to us as humans that we can be exactly like Jesus in this life. That we can, if we just, if we love God enough, if we serve God right, if we do all these things, we can become exactly the same as who Jesus was on the earth, pleasing God to the very nth degree, well, that's a clear abuse of the Bible's understanding, not only is Jesus as the person, as Jesus as God, but also of sin and humanity's need for a savior. If we can become like Jesus, then Jesus died for nothing. There's no point in that. R.C. Sproul, one of the most amazing theologians of the past century, explains it this way. In the incarnation, Jesus did not surrender any of his attributes. The divine nature is still eternal, infinite, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, meaning he's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, and he's always present. It manifests all the attributes that belong to his deity as God. God did not stop being God when he took on human flesh. 
But when Jesus came, his human nature retained all of its own attributes, being finite, contained, unable to be at more than one place at one time, limited in knowledge and limited in power. All of the attributes of humanity remained the attributes of Jesus. So two separate essential natures as one. Jesus takes essential nature number one and essential nature number two and doesn't make two out of it. He makes one out of it. See, if Jesus is not God, he cannot pay, pay attention to this, he cannot pay for the penalty of sin. If Jesus isn't God, he cannot pay for the penalty of sin because only perfect God can excuse and, and be the substitute for sin. It's the only way that it happens. But if Jesus is not fully human, he cannot pay for the punishment of sin. Those things are different. The penalty of sin is the thing that we earn because of our own willing choice to rebel against God and his character. But the punishment of sin is the separation that we experience from God because of the penalty. And so either we will experience both of these together as Jesus takes on the plight of humanity, or we don't. It can't be one or the other. Both are necessary for salvation to happen. If you're thoroughly confused now, you can go back and watch it a little later online, but I think you've got it. Because this is what it says in verse 6. Jesus, being in the very nature of God, did not consider his right as God as something to be used as his advantage or his spoil of war, but made himself emptied by taking on the nature of a slave, being made in human likeness. Not saying that he was made and created as a person. He was preexistent and he became a person. And being found in appearance as a man, not to suggest that Jesus only looked like human flesh, but he was actually human flesh. Jesus, this word shows up again that didn't exist before. Jesus humbled himself. The very first person in the Greek understanding that actually takes on this position of humility is Jesus himself. And not only does he do that, he becomes obedient to death and death on a cross. Jesus didn't display any sense that, he, that his humanity was beneath his station. He didn't, he didn't walk around saying, it is, it is wrong and evil that I'm contained in this fleshly body. No, he allowed for himself to be a man and humbled himself to the point of death. Jesus humbles himself in the most insane way possible. Jesus, the eternal second person of the Trinity, the very source of life itself, the breath of God, the word of God, the very essential nature of God, humbles himself, the author of life, to death. This is both the humility of Jesus willingly taking it on and also the humiliation of Jesus because it never should have happened, earthly speaking. And he could have stopped it at any time because he's God. But he didn't take his rights as God as something to be grasped. And anyone not motivated by love, we would have stopped. We would have. But Jesus, doing what Paul says to the church to do, looks as us as more important than himself, which is ludicrous. Creator of the universe, tiny little human with a lifespan of about 70 years. Doesn't make any sense. But Jesus looks at us and says, I value you more than I value me. What? 
See, oftentimes we get in our own heads that we somehow deserved God's plan for salvation and the suffering and death of Christ because we are somehow lovable on our own to the point where God had to fix our problem. No, it's the exact opposite. The love of Christ motivates his willing death and the exact representation to us that we are not lovable on our own. The fact that you are loved by God is because Jesus is willing to die for you. That's the value. That's where it comes from. We aren't able to provide salvation for ourselves. We aren't able to pay off our own sin debt. We can't fix our greatest problem. Only God can and only Jesus would. But notice this. It's death. It's not just death. It's horrendous. Historians still agree that crucifixion was the most, if not one of the most, horrendous and painful, humiliating acts of execution. It could last for days. It was public. The accused were hung on trees, naked, bearing their shame to the world, unable to be helped by anybody else because they are off the ground to be made a spectacle of. Most would often suffocate, choking on their own blood before they would die of thirst or starvation. This was not a nice way to die. It wasn't slow. And it wasn't quiet. And Jesus willingly, willingly takes it on. Which leads us to this glorious reality that we get to exalt Christ in his resurrected glory. The story doesn't stop at his death, it doesn't stop at his death. Look what Paul writes in verse 9. Therefore, because Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even taking death as the cross, God highly exalts him, giving him the name that is above every name. Not some names. Not my name. Not Canada's name. Every single name. So that the name of Jesus, because he's earned it, he's now taken back his rights as God, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus, is, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, because Jesus was willing to become human, confined to our limitations, trapped in our incapacity, strangled by the boundaries of our human-created broken world, he was willing to die in our place, thinking of us as more important, as superior to himself. God exalts him to the highest place because of his finished work on the cross. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is why it's good news. Because Jesus does it. Not me, not you. He does See, if we can't see our salvation as the only motivation to give our lives fully surrendered to the God of the, our God, Jesus Christ, we have been robbed of the real realities of the gospel. If we somehow think that we can pay God back, we're sorely, sorely missing the point. And so Jesus has been given the name. Name in this culture and context means authority. It's funny, right? Father, I'm going to go to earth and I'm going to do your will. Yes, Jesus, you're going to do that. I'm going to, I'm, going to give, I'm going to give away my right to being equal with you. Yep, you're going to do that. Oh, Jesus, by the way, when you're done, I'm not only going to give you the position you had before, I'm going to make it better. I'm going to make it more glorious. I'm going to make it more beautiful. 
And at your name, Jesus, every knee will bend in utter need and dependence, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is God either willingly in adoration and love or willingly out of fear and regret. And so the call of this passage that Paul is laying out for us is that we are to live a life that's subjected to the will of Jesus. If he's willing to do it, if he's, if he's the king who's willing to get on his hands and knees and clean the floor, and we think it's so ridiculous, it doesn't make sense, how much more should we do it? Because we're not better than the master. And so he says, I call you to do the same. Humble yourselves, come underneath one another, support one another, encourage one another, ex exude the humility of Jesus in your life. And so we share. We share in the mind of Christ in unity. We need each other in order to do this. Everybody has to pull their own weight. And when we do, it looks beautiful. It looks right. It looks true. The only way that we can do that is if we model the humility of Jesus that he showed us in his incarnation. As he comes to earth, divesting himself of his godhood, allowing himself to be confined to creation. But because he did that, God exalted him above every name. Our worship to Jesus flows from Jesus's action and Jesus's action should be our model to do likewise. Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christ follower. And God's pulling at your heartstrings because you realize the gravitas, the weight of what Jesus has done for you. I plead with you, surrender your life to Jesus. Don't make this about asking Jesus into your heart. Ask Jesus to invite you into his. That you would be cleansed and free from your guilt and sin, allowed to come into this beautiful relationship that God buys for you with the precious blood of Christ. That as you accept this free gift and receive it, understanding it was costly, it cost Jesus everything and it will cost you. Oh, but what you gain, what you gain, freedom from sin, Grace in times of turbulence, hope for a future, love that cannot cease, a joy that flows from being known and from knowing the king who is above every other name. So I'm gonna pray. And if that's you today, I'm gonna lead you in prayer. And if you give your life to Christ today, my prayer in this moment is that it would stick, that Jesus would hang on to you with such ferocity that you would be able to exalt Christ in his resurrected glory. Would you pray with me? Father God, we ask you to do the miraculous in causing dead hearts to come alive because of Jesus's finished work. Thank you, Jesus, that you are willing to give everything for us, not thinking of yourself as superior, even though you are in every way, you gave yourself for us. What a thing to be reminded of. That your love has motivated the greatest act of humble sacrifice that the world has ever known and will ever see. For that person who's not a Christ follower who needs to bend the knee to Jesus today, just invite them, God, as I pray this, that your spirit would touch their hearts and motivate them to bend the knee and to confess. 
So if this is you, pray along with me in your heart, under your breath. Jesus, I believe that you are God. I believe, Jesus, that you came to earth in order to pay the penalty for sin that I could never pay. Thank you. I have no right to claim the salvation that you offer, but to ask that you would accept me into your life, that you would give me your life, that you would free me from sin, and that you would give me strength and courage to follow you every day of my life. Jesus, forgive my sin, that I may live in grace and harmony and joy and in the love that you provide. Please take my confession and save me. We pray this in Christ's glorious name. Amen.